as, as your pastor said, I, I look after mission for our fellowship, ACCI. And I want to thank you for your support of ACCI. You've been really quite amazing uh, in the stuff that you do and your engagement with us in mission. And I thought I would give you the opportunity to just uh, have a catch-up on what's going on uh, around the country. So over the last two years, that is January to January for two years, so we're already six months a bit late. Uh, you're approximately 100 and oh, it fluctuates a bit, but uh, 70, 180 missionaries they planted 499 churches around the world. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And uh, they trained 12,632 indigenous leaders. They saw nearly 8,000 people come to Christ. They baptized nearly 2,000, saw uh, 1,500 people filled with the Holy Spirit. They took uh, 1,168 people in teams and gave them exposure and opportunity in mission. But at the same time, they assisted 350 8,000 children, 358,000 kids. Isn't that amazing? Now, you should understand what that means. Is that doesn't mean that we have lots of orphanages filled with children, ra rather the reverse. We want to help those children in the community. So we want to help to educate them there. We want to help their parents there so that we are not taking children out of their communities and put them in institutions. Okay, we believe that that's detrimental and has a detrimental effect on the child's life. And so we don't want to keep them in an institution. We want to keep them in family and keep them in community. So we work hard to do that. At the same time, we assisted adults uh, uh, to the number of 405,493. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So if you add those two figures together, it's almost 800,000 people that we assisted in the last two years. That's amazing. 800,000 people. That's pretty amazing. How many do you have in town? 15,000. So that's all of this town times two times three times four. There you keep going. So that's an awful lot of people, isn't it? When you look at it, it's four times the size of the MCG on Grand Final Day. That's a lot of people, right? And, and that's what your fellowship has done with your help. Now, at the same time, of course, we, because of stuff like with the children, we we are engaged at various levels. It's important on the one level to assist the children and their families and the community that's in poverty so that they are not selling their children. They are not allowing people to come in and buy them and there's no trafficking going on in those places. In order to do that, we have to reduce poverty, which is the main cause of all of this. So that's why we work in the communities. And by doing that, we're helping the parents rise above poverty and we are protecting the children from being trafficked and giving them opportunity for better education and better health. The Australian government set up what was known as, or is known at the moment, as the um, inquiry into modern slavery. The idea is that the government would pass legislation that would remove slavery from the chain of supply to Australia and within Australia. Uh, and they set up this inquiry, asked a lot of people to submit documents. We did as a fellowship. ACCI did also submit a paper to them. And then they asked four expert people to come and talk to them about modern-day slavery. And we were one of the four experts in Australia on modern-day slavery that was asked to speak to our government. So we had a day with them, and we spoke with them, with the senators and other people from various parts of government. That's your fellowship did that, okay? And we have a particular area of 
modern slavery that we speak about, which is our expertise, and that is in regard to children. So we spoke to them in regard to children, how modern slavery applies to children, and how children are being enslaved in orphanages in order to raise money, how criminal, uh, criminal gangs and get children, keep them in there, keep them in poverty, get the tourists to come through, have a look at these poor kids with their snotty noses and rags, and make donations which never go to the children but go as siphoned off to the criminal elements, and how they're kept in slavery like that as an attraction, to, particularly to Westerners, who will sign up and pay when they go on a trip through Cambodia or, or Thailand. They'll sign a document and, and they'll pay money to go and visit an orphanage and play with the kids and do all sorts of stuff. In actual fact, the children are kept in that place in order to get that money. So we're talking about this modern forms of, of slavery. As a result, the senators all accepted our, our proposals, and they will be enacting legislation that will make it very difficult for that to happen and prevent that from ever happening in our nation. So we were considered one of the expert witnesses in the nation. Isn't that good? Your fellowship actually does know what it's doing. We've already spoken at uh, the United Nations in Geneva and also in U New York, and we have another big uh, international event to go to where we will present about this topic in a few months' time. So we are considered to be expert. I know you don't think your fellowship is expert on anything, you know, because it's family, and of course, you know, family never is any good, uh, but we are. Actually, we're really good, and we know what we're doing. So when you support us in mission, we do some fantastic things together. And you can be sure that you're giving to, to a group of people who actually know what they're doing and actually are expert, and they're all very well trained, and they're all very well educated in these areas. Uh, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the team of people that I work with and uh, that we have put together so that we can, in fact, do something that's extremely significant, beneficial to lives, multitudes of lives every year. To give you a picture of what that looks like, I'd like to play this little video clip for you. And it'll give you an insight into actually what happens when we start transforming a community. And it's from their point of view, not ours. You won't see a white face, okay, because we don't go. All right? You won't see an Aussie, because that's not important. We have trained the nationals. And now the nationals take care of this, and we guide them and continue to train them and give them some direction. But fundamentally, this is all what they do and what you and I support when they transform communities. Thank you. ខ្ញុំជំនុំមានឥទ្ធិពលដល់ <coughs> ไปสัพเพรอยเจกัดกอบกอหมู่บอเจสมบองนั้นคือสรายด้วยการอนุสรายนั้นให้ในตําบลนี้ว่าหาตึกให้วิธีจนไตรกรอเพชรเชิญบ
มือนทาเราทาบ้านลูกอัดมีนลานตะเพียนเต้ลูกอัดลานเพียนปันเต้บิชราอันไปต้องมึงยิ่งช่วยกอดบ้านอันนี้การเปิดให้เราไปได้ยืมบ้านจอช่วยนั่งกอดกอดอ้อนนะก็ท่าก็ท่าเมียนแต่กรมจุนลมได้ได้อายมาช่วยกอดตัวซอเดียมนองนั่งกอดสบายใจช่วยเกี่ยวกับคนช่วยเกี่ยวเรื่องอ่างจังจำไตรเกี่ยวสูนตำน้ำกรอบตำน้ำไอ้ผู้แฝงมาช่วยนายน้องของเรียนปีนัดส่งเพียงนี่จีกาภาษาสำหรับจีจงทางสังคมนี่จำพวกตัวบ้านอมน้อยสระนี่เรียกเกี่ยวเกี่ยวโดยท่าเกี่ยวอมน้อยมวยยางอย่างคลายคลาสำหรับจีจงทางสังคมนี่ไปได้ยังบ้านช่วยสาธิตนั่งคือมีในท่ากวาดคืออ้อมหาทานอ้อยกวาดลูกครูเขานั่งอ้อยอ่างไตรนั่งยำจำไตรห้องดำปลาไหลพองและอายดอกไตรมันจิ้มเพียบรูซ่าขยงบ้านครุบครอนให้แจกจ่ายบองโอยังหกเตี้ยจีจงสบายจัดรูเคยสราบกาโจรูมกาโบริจักได้ชุ่มเวงเสียนี่มันติดมันติดไม้ติดกวาดกวาดโบริจักได้สากวาดสบายจัด ăn cùng tiền ăn mà chui sập sai vậy ngon, nâng chui cột cung ăn cột cung này giống dương chè miền la tập hiệp, chè thừa tam qua chân tinh 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 giàu, lại thà lại mình tên ngon, lại đồng bè xin em một, chấm pua phải chia chốn nông nông thạc cúm cây phe bao đài để thà cây khơi trồng chỉ núm, rừng tiền nắng cho tới chui to, còn mưa khơi thà bảy su cứ bảy bảy để để chui, kiếm hoa trà hoa bảy cứ chui. ก็คนดูได้บ้านเอาไตรนี่ละอ้อมือไทยนั่งละอ้อหกเตี้ยเจ้าก็งี้ก็บ้านอุปถัมภ์เอาอยู่เที่ยวมันน่ะไม่ได
the week after they had completed the dam, they had unseasonable monsoon rains, which should not happen. And now the water's pouring into their dam. And that's why the government says, work with those Christians. We don't believe, but work with the Christians because strange things happen. <laughs> strange things. And we could tell you lots of stories of how God has done some amazing things. So, you know, you see that the pastor is there and you see that people are coming to Christ and there's a church now in that village. And if you just go there, stand on the corner and preach the gospel, it's not going to happen. But we show them the love of God and we help and we get into that community and really begin to transform it. People see the love of God. Amen. So continue to pray for us. And I'm hoping that you will continue to work with us so we do some great things around the world. Amen. If you have a Bible, and so few do these days, uh, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And um, maybe you've got it on your phone or an iPad or something like that. But if you have a Samsung phone, would you switch it off, please? Because it's, it's a fire hazard and we don't want to burn the church down. So if you just put aside that piece of junk and um, use it when you go outside. That's good. Okay. Just, just saying, you know, just a fact, isn't it? Really, it's just a fact. It's a fire hazard. All right, um, in John chapter 8, there's a story that you're very familiar with, but I would like to take a bit of a fresh look at it. It says, uh, early in the morning, it says, verse 2 of chapter 8, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? It says in the next verse, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. So this whole thing was a bit of a charade. It wasn't genuine. It was, it was a trap. What they really wanted to do was not find out what the solution was to the, for the, a woman taken into adultery. What they wanted to do was discredit Jesus. They wanted to damage his reputation. They didn't want the crowds to be following him and listening to him anymore. And so what they thought they would do is they would undermine his authority and take away his reputation. So in order to do that, they had to set a trap so that Jesus would make a mistake. Now, if you want to set a trap for anything, uh, the only way you can do it is by identifying the weakness that that person has, right? So if you want to set a trap for mice and you put cheese there, because cheese like mice. It's a weakness. Cheese like mice. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. But I know that mice like cheese. Mice like cheese. You've got to identify the weakness. Yeah? Identify the weakness. Then you can set the trap. So you've got to put in the trap the thing that is a weakness to what you want to trap, what it really uh, sort of has a, a weakness for. So in order to set this trap, they had to find out the weakness of Jesus. And I know you look at me stunned, but they discovered it. They discovered that Jesus has a weakness. He has a fatal flaw. They watched him for weeks, listened to what he said, watched everything he did, and they said, right, we got him. We know the flaw of Jesus. We know where he's going to make a mistake here. We've got him dead to rights. So they set this trap up. They said, okay, what we need is to set up this trap with a lot of, uh, you know, pomp and emotion. So they, they found a woman in adultery. 
How did you find that? How did you find Oh, we just found her. No, they didn't find her. They knew. Okay. They knew. They knew that she was going to be at a particular place committing adultery with a particular person. But you notice that only she turns up. They don't bring the man. Why didn't they bring the man? Well, first of all, of course, bringing the man is not going to be so effective as bringing the woman. Bringing the woman will play upon everybody's emotions much more than if you bring the man. No, because if you bring the man, they're likely to say, yeah, take him out and kill him. But if you take the woman, well, it's a more emotional sort of thing, you see? So they wanted to build up the crowd in the emotion. But also you may ask, how did they ever know? And who was this man? And was he one of their friends? And they weren't going to bring one of their friends, were they? So they had to bring this woman. And so somehow they contrived to get this woman and bring her. And doing this, they were abusing her, victimizing her. They were exploiting her sin for their own religious purposes. They didn't care about her. They were doing this for a religious purpose. They didn't care about that woman and what was going to happen to her as a result of her public sin being exposed. So they, they didn't care. All they cared about was what they wanted. And so they brought the woman to Jesus and threw her on the ground and said, Moses said, stone her. What do you say? And that's when the trap was sprung and Jesus Jesus did exactly as they predicted. His fatal flaw. He said, well, if I can summarize it, I don't condemn her. The flaw of Jesus was that he was willing to forgive. His fatal flaw is called grace. As far as they were concerned, he would make the mistake of forgiving this woman instead of punishing this woman. They knew that. They knew it from the beginning. They said, he's so weak. He's got a flaw. We can use his weakness. All we've got to do is bring somebody so obviously guilty to him. And you know, this sucker's going to say, now I'll forgive them. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing for us to think that the unbelieving religious leaders of the day had absolute confidence in the fact that Jesus would forgive. Never questioned it. That as far as they was concerned, it was inevitable that Jesus would show grace. No matter what sin they brought to him. And they tried to bring the worst possible sin that they could to him. And they knew Jesus would not be able to resist grace and forgiveness. Strange, isn't it, that the unbelieving religious people knew about Jesus and about his awesome grace and his unfailing forgiveness? And yet Christians worry about it and doubt it all the time. We say, I don't know if God can forgive him. I don't know if God's forgiven me. I'm not, I don't know if God's forgiven me. Listen, why don't you have the faith of an unbelieving Pharisee? Have the faith of an unbelieving Pharisee. He was absolutely sure of the forgiveness of Jesus. Absolutely certain in regard to the grace of God. And we Christians, we question it all the time. I don't know if God could forgive somebody like that. You un you're not even an unbelieving Pharisee when you say that. You're worse. Huh? So we need to have greater faith in grace. Amen? Greater faith in forgiveness. Greater faith in Jesus and, and, and His attitude and His expression of grace and love towards us. So it was interesting that this was a trap. Now let's think about it. 
Because it tells us first that we can trust in the grace of God. And it tells us that we can have confidence in Jesus Christ uh, uh, during our guilt and our failures that we will find grace and forgiveness. But let's look at this. What's the first response? When they come to Jesus and they throw her on the ground and uh, they test. But it says, verse 6, But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as, as though he did not hear. Now, I know you've seen this a thousand times, but Jesus doesn't do this sort of thing. It's rather unusual. He totally ignored them. Now, to put it in the context of today, if Jesus lived today, he would not have got down on the ground and scribbled. He would have done this. Wouldn't he? And if I'm talking to you, you're talking to me, and I pull this out, and I start going like this. What am I doing? I'm ignoring you. But I'm ignoring you for a reason, aren't I? Because I'm thinking, this is a stupid conversation. I don't want any part of this. Isn't that right? He's sending a message. He's sending a message by writing on the ground. He's saying, this is really stupid. Do I have to listen to this nonsense? This is really dumb. It's an interesting, silent message, isn't it? Some people have asked the question, what is he writing on the ground? Well, you know what? We don't know. Uh, because it's not important what he wrote on the ground. If it was, we would know. The movies that you've seen about Jesus, he writes the sin down of each one of these people, and as they see their sin being written, they go off. Oh, it's all romantic and nice, but actually the facts are we don't know. What we do know about his writing on the ground, what is significant about it, is the finger of God only writes twice in the Old Testament. Once, it writes on Mount Sinai, writing on the tablets of stone. Okay? And Moses sees the finger of God writing and brings those tablets of the law to the people. So, listen, these are all religious leaders. They know about the finger of God writing the law. They've memorized it. When he's writing on the floor, is he saying to them, I'm writing a new law. A new commandment I'm giving to you. A new commandment, not based on law and judgment, but based on grace and forgiveness. Is he showing to them that he is the new law? The New Testament has come? A new law is being brought? And the old is passed away? I don't know. Second time the finger of God writes in the Old Testament is on the wall when the king is having dinner. Remember that? They're all having a big party and a hand comes and writes on the wall and they call for the prophet to come and the prophet interprets it and says, you have been found wanting and this day your kingdom will be taken from you. It was a writing of judgment. It was a writing that says, this, this has come to an end. This kingdom, this era, it's finished. And when Jesus is writing on the ground, is he saying the same thing to them? Is he saying, your time's finished, guys. Your time's up. God's had enough. Because within 30 years of them crucifying Jesus, the Romans invaded and destroyed that city and that temple and brought it to the ground. So what is he saying in writing? I don't know. I've got a new commandment for you and you guys are finished. It's all over. And there's going to be a fresh start. And it's going to be based not on a law written on tablets of stone, but on a law written upon the heart. We don't know. And it could be. That he's trying to communicate some of that to them. But certainly he was saying to them, this is really dumb. What are you doing this for? This is really a foolish thing for you people to be doing. 
So the silence is symbolic to us. But when he replies, it's very interesting. Because it says in verse 7, they kept on questioning him. So they asked and asked, and he kept ignoring, and he kept ignoring, and he kept ignoring. And they kept on questioning, and then eventually he straightened up. And he said to them, and you know this very well, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Notice what he says. Let any one of you who is without sin. What he doesn't do is talk about the woman here. He doesn't say how big her sin is. He, all right, she has sinned. He doesn't deny it. But his point is, why are you making a fuss about her sin when you all have sin? You all. He said, which one of you? Which one of all of you? His point is, every one of you are sinners. I think his underlying point is, you brought this woman here, uh, and you wanted to see what I would do, and I'm going to forgive her, and you know I'm going to forgive her. You know she's going to receive grace. And if you knew that, why didn't you come with your sin? You should be where the woman is now. Come and receive grace. Come and receive forgiveness. Because the point of Jesus is there's only one person there who is without sin, and that's himself. And it's to him that everybody should be coming. And I suppose it teaches us, you know, that none of us here are without sin today. I know we tend to think that we are wonderful. And I know we're like preachers who tell us you're wonderful. And we're great. And we can do all things. And we got all... The truth is, you're bad. You're even worse than you think you are. At your worst times, when you think you're bad, you're worse than that. Much worse than that. Much, much worse than that. You actually can't get any worse than you are. That's what the Bible says. Even when you do good things, your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. It just it doesn't work, buddy. It doesn't work. There is nothing you and I can do that God considers acceptable. We need grace. That's what Jesus is saying. We need forgiveness. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. But you can come and receive it. It's free. Amen. And so there has to be this act of faith, of coming and saying, Lord, I need your forgiveness and grace. Not, well, I'm pretty good. Actually, I'm not as bad as them. And they're far worse than me. And uh, so, you know, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my hardest. All of that doesn't work. What we need to do is put ourselves in the place of the woman and say, I'm guilty. Give me grace and forgiveness. And that's what his point with them. His point with them is, why are you focusing on this woman and using her for some stupid, you know, purpose of your own, when really, if you really believe and you really know that I'm the one who forgives, then look at yourself and understand you too need my forgiveness. And God will give it. Amen? Without shadow of doubt. Without shadow of doubt. And we should always recognize the fact that we would not be here if it were not for the grace and forgiveness of God. And we should always remember that no matter what happens, no matter what you do next, because you are prone to stuff things up. Come on. You'd be lucky to get home without stuffing it up today. That's human nature, right? It is human nature. And God understands the human nature. Because when the disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he says, okay, we're going to do it like this. He says, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And he's teaching them to pray. Jesus doesn't pray this prayer. It's a disciples' prayer. They ask, teach us to pray. So he's going to teach them to pray. But it's not the way he prays. So he says, okay. Then what does he say? Uh, our kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven as it is in earth. 
and, and forgive us this day. Yeah. And then he says, give us daily bread. So what did Jesus say in, in, in this thing called the Lord's Prayer, which is actually the disciples' prayer, the prayer he gave to the disciples? He says, you're going to need from me every single day of your life provision, bread. And every single day, you're going to need forgiveness. Why? Because you will sin as often as you're hungry. He understands you and me. Don't, don't, don't sh show me, oh, yeah, I'm so holy. Oh, yeah, I'm the holy one. I'm the holy one. I never do anything wrong. We all know you're pretending. We all know that. I know when you woke up this morning, God told you to have scrambled eggs rather than boiled eggs because you're so in touch with the Holy Spirit. But that's junk. That's absolute rubbish. Rubbish. I remember I asked God one day, I stood in front of my wardrobe and I said, God, which shirt will I put on today? He said, I'm your father, not your mother, I don't care. <laughs> Come on. Some people are hearing God talk to them all the time. They need a doctor and some pills. That's not the way it works, okay? It's not the way it works. We walk by faith, amen? I don't need a spooky voice. I walk by faith, yeah? And I'm telling you right now, don't pretend to me that you're something really special because I know the secret because I'm just like you. I know what goes on. We all think we can pretend to others, but we all do the same things up here and in here. Yeah. And Jesus knows it, and he is not taken up with our pretenses. And so he says to the crowd, you need it too. And we must never forget we need it too. Every day. Every day we've got to go and say, Lord, forgiveness. I need forgiveness. I need grace. I need, wash me. Wash me. Purify me. Cleanse me every day. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If any man say he has not sinned, he deceives himself. No one else is deceived. Only you. You do know that, don't you? You're walking around like, I never die. I never do anything wrong. Well, the only person, we all know that's not true. It's only you, the, the, the sucker that believes that. Nobody else, okay? Nobody else. So the point is, we all need forgiveness, amen? It's never, it, it, it's, it's never wrong to admit that you need to be forgiven. It's never wrong to ask for forgiveness. You know that? We've got to be big enough to understand this. Don't pretend. Be real. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask your wife for forgiveness. Probably easier to get it from God, but you should try and ask your wife. God, God doesn't live with you. <laughs> Doesn't have to clean his socks and all the rest of it, does he? So, I mean, it's a bit harder with the wife, but ask your husband, ask your kids. See, forgiveness is something we're always going to need. And I can tell you, regardless of others, God will always forgive you. And that's the most important thing of all, that we will receive forgiveness from God. We can't afford to be judgmental people. We can't afford to say, ah, him, yeah, look at him. Oh, he's, he's really bad, that guy over there, I tell you what. Wow, you know, whoa, he's specially bad. No, we can't do that. We're all just as bad as each other. Huh? I'm not talking to her. You do. If only you knew what she's done. Come on, that, that's got no place in the family of God. 
We're all just as bad as each other. We're not here to judge each other and condemn each other, criticize each other. We all just need to come for grace. Amen? That's what we need. That's what we need. So in this reply of Jesus, his point is made that you all, we all need forgiveness. And we need to take responsibility for our own failures. Not like these religious leaders who wouldn't take any responsibility and were living with a pretense of being perfect. So he says, where are those accusers of yours? You notice that? Those accusers of yours. Where are your accusers? Did you leave them at work? You're going to go back to them on Monday? Or maybe you left them at home today and you're going back to have lunch with your accusers. <laughs> who are your accusers? Because I know you've got some. You've got people who point the finger at you, haven't you? Maybe they don't do it to your face, but you know they're doing it behind your back. There are accusers. We all have accusers. People who criticize. People who condemn. People who want to say something negative about us. Listen, that's life, okay? That's life. Now, where are your accusers? Because Jesus is going to say to her, it doesn't matter what the accuser is saying. You take notice of what I say. Don't live by what the accusers say. Live by what I say. You will always have accusers. The question is, are you going to live by what they say or live by what God is saying? She had to make a choice. I'm going to ignore the accusers. You can't get rid of them. I'm going to ignore the accusers. I'm going to listen to what God says. What does he say? He straightened up and asked her. And when she said no, uh, then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Two things together here. Neither do I condemn you, but don't go back to it. Now, you see, when we read that, it, it looks at first like, oh, well, and we can gloss over it and say, fantastic, praise God, problem solved. <laughs> you really think so? <laughs> She's got a husband at home who wasn't there. But by the time she gets home, he's heard all about it. Hey, mate, did you see your wife? That, oh, man. Whoa, just, whoa. The whole village would know about it. And she knew that she had to go home to her husband and to her family and to her community. And now she's been humiliated in public. So when Jesus said, I forgive you, that's not the end. Okay? It doesn't solve all the other problems along the way. And that's what forgiveness doesn't do, you see. Grace and forgiveness doesn't undo all the bad. Yeah? Because what we have sown, we're going to reap. Yeah? So the point with Jesus, with this woman, is he's saying, listen, I know, lady, you've got to go back and face your husband. That's going to be pretty horrific. I know you're going to face your children, your community, your family, and this is going to be terrible for you. But I want you through all of this to remember I have forgiven you. And on that foundation, you can rebuild your life. We rebuild our life on a, the forgiveness of God. If we don't have that, then we'll struggle with guilt and be unable to build a strong, on a strong foundation. But we can go back and deal with all the other problems knowing I'm forgiven by God. And if they don't forgive me, well, I'm sorry about that. I'd love them to forgive me and I've asked for their forgiveness. But if they don't, well, I'm going to have to rebuild on the foundation of God's forgiveness, which is unchangeable. I say, think sometimes when we come to Christ and we get, receive grace and forgiveness, we think we're going to go home and everything's going to be so wonderful. You're on the wrong planet. That never happens. 
It never happens. Haven't you realized that? You know, you've got a problem in work, well, you're going to go back to the problem you left there on Friday. Now, okay, occasionally once in a, God will do something really uh, amazing. But what God's most interest is in you and me. He wants to change us. So the point is that we, we get grace and we get forgiveness and we go back home uh, as a new person with a new beginning and a fresh foundation and we start to do things differently. We act differently, we behave differently, we talk differently. And that, if we will allow the grace of God to flow in us that way, that will solve those problems given time. What you need is not to go to work on Monday and the problem's gone. You need to go as a different person to that problem. You need to go home as a different person, back into that marriage as a different person, back into that particular difficulty as a different person, as a person of grace with forgiveness so that you're not going to deal with it anger and bitterness and you're not going to deal with it by tit for tat. You're going to go back and be Christ-like in that place and that's tough. But you're going to go back with a new heart and a new spirit and that's the way God's going to change the situation. But it all starts on the foundation of grace and forgiveness. Amen? So that wasn't the end for the woman. It was the beginning. See, forgiveness isn't the end. It's the beginning. We often treat it as Christians like it's the end. Well, all I've got to do is get forgiven and everything's fine. No, no, it's not fine. That's just the start. And that's why you find some people come to church and they accept Jesus and they get Jesus in their life. And that's really wonderful. And a few months later, they're gone because they didn't understand it's a beginning, not the end. It's a beginning. John, we get it all wrong. We think that we accept Christ in order to go to heaven like it's some sort of, you know, life insurance so you don't burn in hell. So you're not buying fire insurance when you accept Jesus Christ. What you're actually doing is you're entering into a life, a life, a transformation of life that is to be outworked in us every single day. It's not about getting to heaven, okay? Forget getting to heaven. Yeah, because what you've got is a long path between here and there. You've got to learn to walk the path. You've got to learn to walk the life. You've got to learn to practice your faith and be Christ-like and walk in the footsteps of Jesus and apply the wisdom of God. If you're doing that, you're on the path to heaven. Heaven takes care of itself when you take care of yourself and your growth and your personal development in Christ. Yeah? Because if it was all about getting to heaven, you'd pray and then die and go to heaven, which we can arrange. <laughs> it's not a problem. But like they say, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die. But God has left you here because there's a work that needs to be done in us, you see? There's a progression and a development. And that's what the woman's being told. All right, I'm nearly out of time. But gee, I'm well over time. Okay, can we finish here? Finish here. Okay, so that's just a cue for the musicians. We say that so you won't know what we've just said, you know. So it's a, it's a cue. It's a, it's a subtle clue. Okay. Was that all right? Is that subtle enough? Okay, subtle enough. Okay. I want you to think about what happened to this woman from a big picture point of view. Let me draw this picture for you. That morning, or some other morning, she got up and got her husband off to work and got all the kids off to school and... When they were all gone, she'd made sure they'd all disappeared down the road. She goes back inside, see? Changes out of her 
house clothes and does her hair and makeup and perfume and dresses up and off she goes down the street making sure nobody can see her because she's on her way to meet her lover she anticipates this meeting as being a moment of great joy for her she's anticipating this time with her lover and saying this is going to be wonderful this is going to be so special he's such a lovely guy i love him he loves me this is so good and so she makes her way to her lover's place knocks on the door the doors open and quickly she sneaks inside they close the door and they begin to embrace and she's filled with anticipation of a wonderful day of love when suddenly the door smashed down and she's caught in the act of adultery in one second her world changes she goes from love to fear she goes from a heart that's filled with anticipation of a of a wonderful fantastic time to a heart filled with dread and of what's going to happen next in a single second her life turned upside down one second one moment she's in joy and enjoying her life and thinking of a great future and in that second she has no future and everything she has is lost her marriage is gone her kids are gone her reputation's gone she knows it it's all wiped out in a single second of time life is like that that's the way life is in one moment your life can be radically changed in one moment that car can smash into you and your life is totally different in one moment, that boss can come into you and say, I'm sorry, we've got to let you go. And all your plans fall to pieces. In one moment, the doctor can look up from that x-ray, look you in the eye, and with a few words, destroy every plan you had for the future of your life. In one moment. Just in a moment. It doesn't take a long time to wreck your future and rob you of everything you've ever had one moment will do it and when that happened and that woman found herself at the foot of Jesus what she found at that moment the moment of her destruction she found grace was waiting for her when they took her she thought she was going to judgment but grace was waiting for her grace was already there she didn't have to call for it it was waiting there for her Grace was anticipating her, waiting for her, and ready to act for her. She didn't have to beg. She didn't have to plead. She didn't have to do a deal. She didn't have to offer anything. Grace was ready. Grace had been waiting for her. I want to say to you, no matter what happens, you don't have to plead for grace to come. Grace is already here. Do you know that? Grace is already here. And when you think that things have fallen apart and you think things couldn't be as, as bad or couldn't get any worse than they are right now, I want you to know you're in a place where grace already lives right there. In your darkest time, that's where you'll find grace. In the time of your greatest pain, that's where you'll find grace. Time of your greatest disappointment, your greatest hurts, grace will already be there and is there right now. Don't sit waiting for grace. Grace is here for you now. Don't plead for it. Grace is ready for you right now. You need to ask and receive grace. Ask and receive forgiveness. Ask and receive the help of God. Because grace is always waiting. 
grace is there before you get there. Before you get there. You say, well, you know, maybe I've done something so terribly bad that grace can't do it. If sin abounds, Paul says, then grace does much more abound. However big your sin is, grace is bigger than that. Forgiveness can cover it all. Cover it all. And whatever it is that's in your heart today, you can receive grace for it right now. Whatever it is you've hidden away, you can receive forgiveness for it right now. You don't have to bury it. It can be forgiven. Amen. Will you bow your heads with me now for a moment? We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you're God of grace. We thank you for Jesus and his forgiveness and his amazing love for us. We thank you that you're present here right now with us to give grace to those who are in need, to forgive those who come asking for your forgiveness. For you're ever ready to accept all of us and every single one of us. You'll turn no one away. For those who call upon the name of the Lord will never be ashamed. And we thank you that you're here right now to give grace and to give forgiveness and to give mercy to those who are in need. We come to you and ask right now, Lord, for your mercy and for your grace. And we ask to receive it now in Jesus' name. So while your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. If you want to receive grace today, why don't you lift your hand? Why don't you lift your hand and say, I'm receiving grace, Lord. I'm receiving your grace, Lord. I'm receiving your forgiveness, Lord. Just lift your hand and let the God of grace just come into your circumstance right now. We receive grace. We receive grace. We receive grace right now in Jesus' name. I thank you, Father. Every one of these hands raised. There's a work of grace going on right now in every one of these lives. As a work of grace, Father, a manifestation of grace in every circumstance represented by every raised hand, in every heart, Father, every mind, and every spirit right now. There's grace, Lord, and transformation and change, Father. And we just thank you for it right now. May they receive it in faith right now. Hold on to it right now. Take a grip of it right now. Never let it go that they are forgiven and grace has come into their life. And freshness and newness and grace is theirs right now. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Robert.